following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning we are going to be in Acts 14. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, this is the time to pull it out. If you've got the Bible on your device, the words will be on screen as well, but always a really good idea to have the Bible open if you can, have it in front of you, follow along as we go. And uh, Sarah Gertson, are you here, Sarah? Here she is, right here. Uh, is going to come and read this passage for us. Thank you, Sarah. Acts 14, 8 to 20. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium Oh, sorry. Then some, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Thanks, Sarah. All right. Now, while we get underway here, there should be a nifty little video coming up on screen, which will show you, I hope, uh, the direction of Paul's first missionary journey. So this is uh, just setting the scene for where we are in this, in this passage because we've jumped a few chapters now in the book of Acts. So we're in the middle of this missions trip that the apostle Paul has taken uh, out into the Roman Empire. Paul and Barnabas, they were commissioned to head off on this missions journey, taking the gospel out uh, beyond just the nation of Israel, out into the broader Roman Empire, the broader Roman world. And so they head off and they initially set out uh, west to Cyprus and then up into the area that we now know as Turkey. Uh, back then it was called Galatia. And that's the area where the letter to the Galatians, some of you might have read that in your Bible, the Galatians, that's where those churches were. So that's the churches that that letter to the Galatians is written to. And Paul and Barnabas uh, worked their way around some of the cities in that area, talking about Jesus, preaching the gospel. These were cities that had never heard the gospel before. It had never come to them. And, and they did what they could, the apostles, to plant little churches where people were open to it, plant little churches of communities that were committed to Jesus that they hoped would continue on after Paul and Barnabas left. 
And so this passage we're looking at this morning is the story of what happens when they come to this one city called Lystra. We could have looked at any number of passages uh, that describe what happened during this missions trip. There are lots of exciting stories there, but I think there's some particularly fascinating things that happen in Lystra, which is why I've focused on it today. So Paul and Barnabas come to Lystra. It wasn't a huge city. It wasn't a particularly significant city in its own day. Lystra was a Roman colony, so full of a lot of Roman citizens, as well as a lot of the indigenous people in in the region. And one of the first things that we read that happens when Paul gets to Lystra is he performs this miracle of healing. And so there's a man there who's disabled in both legs and he's unable to walk. He hasn't been able to walk from birth. And Paul heals him. So get up and walk. And this man does. I mean, it's the kind of miracle that Jesus would have done, you know, the kind of miracle that we've seen Peter doing. And now Paul is performing this amazing miracle. And so the man's able to walk for the first time. And the crowd think this is incredible. I mean, they're amazed, as you would be, by this kind of miracle. This person who was lame is now able to walk. And they're trying to understand what's happened. They're trying to make sense of this incredible miracle that Paul has performed. The problem is that the whole worldview that these townspeople had was the worldview of Greek mythology. That's what they knew. So it was all the Greek gods, you know, Zeus and, and Hermes and uh, Aphrodite, you know, all these, all these different gods. That was their world. And so when they heard and saw what Paul had done, they just tried to absorb this within the categories that they already had. And they tried to make sense of it within their own world. And so they thought, well, this, this must be the Greek gods that have done this. This must be like the Greek gods have come down and performed this miracle among us. So they decided that Barnabas must be Zeus. I think probably because he was the older one. And Zeus is like one of the chief gods. So Barnabas, you get to be Zeus. And Paul, they thought, would make a good Hermes. Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And I guess because Paul was the spokesperson he was the one doing the talking. They thought, right, you must be, you must be Hermes. So they, they assumed that that's what was happening here. These, these Greek gods had come down. They'd performed this miracle. And so the people started worshiping them as gods, started, started offering sacrifices to them. There was a temple outside the city, a temple to Zeus. And next thing, the priest of that temple is coming out with, with bulls and wreaths and starting to offer sacrifices and leading the people in this great ceremony of worship to these gods who have come among us. Now, to understand why these people went quite so crazy for Paul and Barnabas, it's helpful to understand a little story that was floating around the region at the time. There was a story, an ancient, an ancient legend in this part of the world, that long ago, a long time before Paul and Barnabas got there, the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes had come down to earth. And they had visited some of the towns around this area. And they had found no hospitality in these towns except for one elderly couple who welcomed them in. And so the gods declared that when they returned again, this elderly couple would be spared, but all of the other towns in the region would be destroyed. So this was the folklore that people were believing. And this was a story that was just part of the culture. And so when they see Paul and Barnabas doing this miracle, they're now thinking, well, hang on a minute. This must be Zeus and this must be Barnabas. They've come back just like they said they would. And so there's no way we're going to make the same mistake again. This time, we are going to roll out the red carpet. I mean, we're going to make sure these guys feel so welcome. We are going to turn it on for them. We're going to put on a show. So they go absolutely nuts for Paul and Barnabas, who they thought were Zeus and Hermes because they didn't want to be wiped out like they thought had been promised. So that explains, I think, a little bit of of why things get so hyped up here. And I think it probably took 
Paul and Barnabas a little bit of time to try and figure out what was happening. Um, They didn't speak the language. So they're trying to make sense of what these people are doing and why these people are bringing out bulls and wreaths and things and what's going on. And you can imagine when Paul finally figured out what's going on, he was absolutely horrified that you've got people here starting to sacrifice to him. People are starting to offer worship to him. He would have been mortified at the thought of that. And so he stands up and he says, friends, what are you doing? We, we, we are not gods. We're just human beings, just like you. We're people, just like you. This is, this is not Zeus. I'm not Hermes. We're just Paul and Barnabas. They try to convince people. You know, we're just, we're just normal people. What are you doing? And we're here to give you the good news. We're here to bring you the gospel, the good news, to encourage you to turn away from these imagined gods towards the one true living God. And with that, Paul then begins this speech. He takes the opportunity to talk to the people some more about God and the truths of the gospel. And it's just a short little snippet that we get of the speech that Paul gives these these townspeople. It only lasts a few verses from about 15 through to 18. There's some speeches and acts that are really long. This is one of the really short ones. So you don't get much. And you can assume probably that Paul said a lot more than what is here. But this gives us a little glimpse into the way in which he engaged with this particular context. And it's interesting, as you look at that, just glance down, verse 15, 16, 17, and 18, and notice what Paul does not do. Nowhere in that speech does he mention the Bible. Nowhere in that speech does he quote from the Old Testament. I mean, he does at other times when he's talking to different groups of people, He'll quote from the Jewish scriptures and he'll talk about Israel's story, but he doesn't do that here. What does he do? He talks about the sea and the earth and the heavens. He talks about God's kindness. He talks about rain. He talks about crops. He talks about food. He talks about joy. He talks about things that were common, that were common to him and to these people. And what Paul is doing here is a particular strategy. There was no point in him starting with the Bible, starting with Abraham, starting with Moses. These people knew nothing about any of that. They weren't Jews. They didn't know the Old Testament. Abraham was not their forefather in faith. They didn't didn't have that there. So Paul uses another strategy and he talks about the common ground that they have. He talks about things they could understand. He talks about things they could connect with. He talks about their own experiences and their own realities of life, things that were ordinary, things that were common, things that they knew. Now, the word for this, Paul doesn't use it here, but this is the word we use in in theology, is the word or phrase, common grace. That's what Paul's doing here. He's talking about common grace. And common grace is just all the ways in which God reveals himself in the world, aside from Jesus and the Bible. So if you think of those things as God's special grace, perhaps, Then God's common grace is just all the ways in which God shows his his attributes, shows his presence, shows his glory, uh, shows his kindness and his favor to all people at all times, everywhere, regardless of who you are or whether you've ever heard about Jesus. Just common grace. And the key verse or the key phrase, I think, that gets at this in, in Paul's speech where he describes this is in verse 17 where he says, Yet he, that's God, he has not left himself without testimony. So in other words, Paul's saying, you you may never have heard about Jesus, and they hadn't. You may never have heard of this God I'm talking about. You've just got all these other gods. 
No one may have ever shared with you the good news. You've never met a Christian before. So you don't know anything about this God. And yet, the God I'm talking about has not left himself without testimony here. He's not left himself without witness there. There are things around you that witness to this God. There are things around us that point towards the reality of who God is, even if people have never heard of that God. And this is where I think there's an interesting connection to our culture today. Even though we're in a very different context and we're not much like the people of Lystra, I think there's still some interesting connections because we are in a culture now, a culture in the West that has become so post-Christian now. We've, so, we've, we've wandered so far from our Christian heritage that now many people are saying we, we are in a pre-Christian culture. Now we're almost in this pre-Christian context where people have never heard the message or at least never heard an accurate, genuine presentation of the good news. And, and when you're talking to people who are not Christians, you can't assume any knowledge. You can't assume any background. You can't assume any, any Sunday school upbringing anymore. You can't assume that there's, there's any kind of shared knowledge of Christianity. But what you can do is talk about common ground. What you can do is talk about common experiences that we all share, things that we all love, things that we all appreciate. There's not much use anymore quoting the Bible to people, is it? You know, to people that aren't Christians, I mean in an effort to try and persuade them. You know, there's no, there's no point. You know, if people hold up the John 3.16 thing at a rugby game now, no, everyone's like, what do those letters and numbers mean? That's just meaningless stuff. Nobody knows that. We have no cultural reference point anymore for the Bible. So we've got to be smart about it as Christians. And we've got to find a new way of connecting with a pre-Christian culture. And Paul gives us the model. It's common grace. Common grace means you find common ground and you work from there to the God who has created all of this. So I think in our post-Christian, pre-Christian culture, some of what Paul says here is really relevant and helpful for us as we engage our culture with the gospel, as we engage people around us in conversations about God. So let me look with you just briefly at three areas of common grace that Paul talks about here. There's three areas that he touches on. The first is creation. He says, In verse 15, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So, in other words, Paul is just starting by describing the beauty of the natural world. Describing the world that we live in, that we can all appreciate its beauty. And he's saying, well, who made all this? Where did all this come from? You appreciate the landscapes that you live within. You appreciate the beauty of the world. Where did it all all come from? And of course, for for his audience, they had their own story based on Greek mythology of where it came from. So that, that was their world. So Paul had a bit of a different starting point than we do. He's trying to move them from, the, from this belief in the Greek gods creating the world towards the one true God. We have a different starting point, don't we? In Western culture, we're starting with people that generally have a very hard time believing in any kind of God who created the world. We're starting in a very secular context with people who generally believe, well, this, was, this is just all the result of random natural chance processes that there is no divine being at all behind this world. So in some ways, you could say, well, we've got a harder job than Paul. We've got a tough starting point. We're starting from a totally naturalistic perspective. But in some ways, I wonder if our job is easier because we've got so much more to talk about now, because we know so much more about our world, because we've got so much more to explore with people. I mean, back in Paul's day, people knew very little about the natural world. They could look around, they could see things. But now, you think about what we know now about the natural world that we live within. Think about what we know now about our planet. 
and how unique that is. Have you heard about the Goldilocks zone that our planet sits in? Yep. The Go- you, know the, you know the story of Goldilocks, right? With the porridge. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Well, this is a term that scientists actually use to describe the Earth's proximity to the sun. We're in the Goldilocks zone. Any closer to the sun, it'd be too hot. Any further away from the sun, it'd be too cold. We just happen to be in this perfect zone that is just right, that is habitable for life. Just happens that the earth is in this particular space in proximity to our sun. And on top of that, the earth is perfectly tilted at just the right angle so that we have seasons. And I know at the moment we probably wish there were better seasons. You know, we're in the, in the dearth of winter, but winter is important for, for certain crops to be able to grow because of the variety of seasons we have. Human beings can live in a whole range of places in the world, not just around this narrow bit in the equator. So we need seasons. And what do you know? The earth is perfectly tilted so that we can have seasons. We have a moon that holds us in, in place so that we don't get too wobbly. All of these things, we have the, the earth has the perfect composition in its inner core and its outer core to be able to sustain life on its surface. Now, all of that's common knowledge. All, you read all that on the, on the National Geographic website. But on the National Geographic website, it will say, this is a, quote, fortuitous set of conditions. That's, that's what it says. This is a fortuitous set of conditions. And I read that and I just think, really? Like, real, is that what it is? Is, it, is this just kind of good luck? Is that the most likely explanation, the number of factors that had to line up for this planet to be exactly where it is and exactly the kind of planet that it is in order to sustain human life? That's just a fortuitous set of conditions. It seems to me that it's much more reasonable to conclude that there's some kind of intelligence behind this. There's some kind of creativity behind this. There's some intentionality. Someone has done something on purpose here. You know, this speaks of design. I think at a certain point it takes more faith to be an atheist than a Christian. I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I, I, what, what that would require of me in terms of believing all of this just happened by natural chance processes is beyond me. To me, it points towards design. It points towards a mind, a mind that has brought all of this into being. It points towards a creator. Now, that's only the beginning of the journey, isn't it? You know, I mean, that doesn't answer the question of who this creator is and which God and all of that. But the point is that common grace is just a first step. And that's, that's what Paul's doing. Creation doesn't get you all the way to Jesus, but it opens up a conversation. It begins a conversation. And that just starts to raise some questions that can get some very secular people thinking in a bit of a different way and maybe just wondering about some things that they hadn't wondered about before. So as Christians, we can appreciate creation for what it is. It reveals the glory of God. We heard that in Psalm 19 this morning that was read to us. But we can also think of creation as something that can be a a talking point, that can be a starting point for engaging people in our culture around the reality of who God is, just cracking the conversation open a little bit and raising the question, is it really likely that all of this is completely random? Or does this speak to design? Does this point ultimately to some kind of God? So creation is one of the most beautiful uh, expressions of God's common grace. Then there's a second form of common grace that Paul touches on here. In verse uh, 17, he says, He has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven 
and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food. Now, all of these things are called providence. Providence is just the way that God has provided for the needs of all people. Regardless of who we are, God's given us a world that has many natural resources. He's given us weather so that the land can be cultivated. He's shown kindness. He's shown a measure of kindness to all people simply by allowing us to benefit from the resources of this world. Right? And he's done this indiscriminately. He's done it for all of us. That's why Jesus said, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't just store up all his blessings for Christians. He doesn't just have a special little ecosystem for Christians, a separate little weather system just for Christians. It's, it's all of us. doesn't matter who you are. The rain comes down on the righteous and the unrighteous. We're all beneficiaries of God's common grace. So God's given us this world of resources and abundance. And it might, I know it does seem, you look around the inequality of the world and you think, well, it doesn't seem like God's given it to people equally. But of course, that's a reflection on humanity, isn't it? Not a reflection on God. God has given us abundance. Unfortunately, human beings are characterized by greed, by hoarding, by selfishness, by corruption, which is why there's such an imbalance in the way that resources are used and distributed and shared and so on. But God is a God of abundance. He's given us a world with plenty of natural resources for us to enjoy. And that's an expression of his common grace. So let me give you an example. Um, Many of you like the taste of vanilla, like a nice vanilla ice cream, vanilla milkshake, vanilla essence, vanilla Coke. Vanilla rooibos. Who's into vanilla? That's probably not even the real vanilla, is it? That's some processed flavoring. Do you know where vanilla comes from? Yeah, yeah, vanilla beans. But actually, there's a vanilla plant. And I only learned it this week. Okay, I'm not some sort of biology geek. But there's a vanilla plant. And that plant has a flower that only opens one day a year. So one 24-hour period, once a year, that flower opens. And in that 24-hour period the flower needs to be pollinated or else the vanilla can't be extracted. The vanilla pods can't be extracted. And then you have this little bee. You have this little bee that was just created for the vanilla flower. It's called the melipina bee. And that bee knows exactly what to do with the vanilla flower. And when that vanilla flower opens once each year, the melipina bee comes along and it pollinates that flower so the vanilla can be extracted. There's this beautiful symbiotic relationship between that particular species of bee and this vanilla plant. So you and I, we're just eating our vanilla ice creams. We're not thinking about this. We're just appreciating food. But behind that, there is this amazing design. There is this incredible layer of complexity that has brought about this enjoyment of food that we can have. So again, you ask the question, is all of this just random Is this just purely accidental? Or does it point towards the fact that maybe there is design? Maybe there is thought that has gone into this to create. And that's just one of many, many examples throughout nature, many examples throughout the animal kingdom where these types of symmetries and symbiotic relationships just perfectly coexist in this beautiful ecosystem so that you and I can benefit from things like vanilla. Now, does all of that just seem completely random? Or is it just possible that maybe that points towards design. Maybe that points towards an amazing artist who created this beauty. Just as an analogy of this, as an illustration, think about the movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The original Snow White and Seven Dwarfs came out in 1937. There's a little clip 
that you can see, just a few seconds long. Now, in that film, there are over 250,000 drawings, hand-drawn by hundreds of artists. And each one of those drawings is on screen for 1 24th of a second. So every second is 24 frames. But every one of those drawings is hand-drawn. So you watch that, and it just seems like that's just a seamless cartoon. You're just enjoying Snow White, and you just see these moving pictures. But behind that is an incredible layer of complexity. Behind that are all of these meticulously drawn works of art, thousands of hours by hundreds of artists to put that labor of love together into what we enjoy. It's just the same with our natural world. We enjoy something as simple as vanilla ice cream. But behind that simple pleasure, there are layers and layers and layers of complexity. And it points towards the work of an artist. It points towards the work of an artist who has incredible accuracy, who has genius, who is meticulous in the way that he has put this world together and has created everything just perfectly so that the world we have is the world that we can enjoy. So, providence. We can appreciate the bounty of things that God has given us, but these are also things that we can carry in our minds as ways of engaging a secular culture on common ground because we all appreciate good food, right? And we all appreciate the beauty and the resources of the world. So these are things, these can be a starting point. Again, it's not going to get you all the way to the gospel. It's not going to get you all the way to Jesus. You know, no one ever ate vanilla ice cream and then, you know, suddenly became a Christian. Maybe they did, but it's just a starting point just to crack the door open to have the beginnings of a conversation about where does all this really point. All right, one final dimension of common grace that Paul describes, and it's in the very last phrase of his speech that's recorded. At the end of verse 17, he says, and he fills your hearts with joy. It's interesting, I think, that Paul goes there. You know, he's just been talking about the world outside of us, this big wide world, and now he's talking about the world inside of us that God also fills our hearts with joy. So part of common grace is the emotions that we experience as human beings. That too testifies to the reality of God. So we know that we are all emotionally complex beings, right? We know this mainly because we've seen the movie Inside Out. <laughs> and that's, we know how it works now. There's a, there's a control panel in my brain and there's five cartoon characters sitting there and they're all pressing buttons. And that's, that's about my extent of understanding of emotions, really. But we know that we are emotional people. We know that we're emotionally complex beings. And to some degree, you know, if you're a skeptic, you can explain that away by saying this is just survival instincts. This is just, you know, our natural animal instincts. We need emotions like fear because it triggers our fight or flight mechanism, and that's just part of our primitive nature. But I'm not sure that all emotion can be explained that easily. Not sure that all emotion that we carry can just be reduced to what is necessary for our physical survival. I mean, think about the fact that us humans are the only species that cry. You know, think about that. We are the only animals that, that weep. You know, a other animals can, can cry out for help, can yelp, but only human beings weep. Only human beings cry and shed tears. So what does that say? What does that tell us? Even Charles Darwin said, tears serve no adaptive function. In other words, he couldn't, you know, there's no purpose to it. There's no logical Darwinian explanation for the fact that we cry, which says to me there must be 
something else going on. That we weep for another reason rather than just survival instincts. And you think of an emotion like joy. What's happening when we feel joy? Joy takes us to our core, right? It it exposes these deep pathways of the human soul. And it's this emotion that kind of transcends just our own natural being. It transcends just our animal instincts. Transcends just our biological state. Transcends just the chemicals in our brain. Joy is something bigger. It's something transcendent. These emotions point towards the fact that we're created in the image of a God who himself has emotions. That we're made in the image of a God who is emotional. Did you know that? God's emotional. He's an emotional God. He's not driven by his emotions, but he has emotions. He has emotions like joy. God is joy. He is the God who defines joy, and he's created us in his image. So when we experience joy, we're experiencing just a little taste of the joy that ultimately points us towards God and God's own heart. Our emotions are bigger than just our animal instincts. They point us to the reality that we're made in the image of a loving, emotional God. So all of these dimensions of common grace, these are all things that we can give thanks for. They're all things we can enjoy. They're all things that we can have up our sleeve in conversation and maybe help pivot a conversation towards more of a God conversation. But we also want to keep in mind, ultimately, these expressions of common grace are intended to lead us to the uncommon grace that's found in Jesus. Ultimately, that's where it all does head. Now, I know not every conversation goes there, and that's fine. But we want to keep our mind on that pathway, that ultimately, these ways in which God has revealed himself to us, they are intended to point us ultimately towards the fullest and truest revelation of God, which is Jesus Jesus is the one who was actively involved in creation. Jesus is the one who is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the one who is the truly human being, including in his emotions. Jesus is the the one who ultimately makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. So even as we're talking about common grace, we want to always just have our eye on the goal that common grace ultimately is there to point us to Jesus. So I want to just encourage you to do two things this week, two practical things, okay? First of all, become more aware of the signs of God's common grace in the world. Just ask God to help you become more aware. And it may be one of the three things we've talked about today. It may be other ways in which God's just revealed himself. You can, when, you, when you start looking for it, you can see God's fingerprints all over the place. He has not left himself without testimony. His fingerprints are everywhere. So become more aware in creation, in in the foods that you eat, in in your own emotional uh, processing of things. Just become aware. These things are there to point me towards the reality of God. And secondly, as you're in conversations with others this week who don't know Jesus, just think about how you might be able to ask a question that might open up a conversation, that maybe you can start a conversation around common ground. What common ground do you have? What common ground do you share? And maybe... That common ground could lead you to common grace. And maybe, just maybe, that common grace could lead you to the uncommon grace that's found in Jesus. Whatever that journey looks like, maybe you could think about just taking a first step, asking a question, having a conversation with someone this week. So let's appreciate all the bounty of ways that God reveals himself to us. And ultimately, let's let all of these things point us and point others towards the one true living God who has said that he's not left himself without testimony in this world. Let's pray.
Father, we want to thank you for your common grace this morning. Lord, you didn't have to provide any of these things for us. But it's a testimony, God, to your generosity, to your love, your sheer kindness, and the pleasure that you take in us, that you have placed us in such a beautiful world and here in such a beautiful country. God, you've created such uniqueness. You've created such complexity. God, you've created an incredible world outside of us, and you've created an amazing world inside of us as well. And God, we're just amazed, and we're humbled, and we thank you. Lord, we know that uh, those of us in this room who are followers of you, God, we see these things as signs that point to you. But we know, Father, that many in the world don't. And we want to pray, Lord Jesus, that as we take the opportunities available to us to just begin opening up conversations about common grace, that you would open the eyes of others to see the reality of who you are so that other hearts might be drawn to you as well. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all the ways that you've revealed yourself in this world and most importantly, the way in which you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.